A note to my podcast feed listeners, what you're about to hear is another episode from the new series I've been working on called Short Reads. Short Reads is basically just me reading a passage from a work of philosophical literature and then offering a few brief insights into the text afterward to help you think about the text and to find ways to apply the concepts in your own life. These episodes are released weekly, and as an Anchor podcast listener, I encourage you to keep listening as long as you like them. If you're finding the series especially enjoyable, I'd like to invite you to head on over to my Locals community page at exitingthecave.locals.com, where you can become a subscriber. A $3 subscription will give you early access to these episodes, as well as to my videos, to my philosophical musings in essay form, and especially to a community of other like-minded listeners where you can discuss these podcasts or any other philosophical topics you find compelling. I'm looking forward to meeting you over there. Now, on with the show. Hello and welcome to another episode of Exiting the Cave, Short Reads. We continue with The Consolation of Philosophy by Boethius, and today we're working on Book 4, Chapter 3. In this chapter, Lady Philosophy reiterates the godliness of complete happiness, and we're treated to an episode from the Odyssey, in which Odysseus's men become the literal swine they reveal themselves to be by way of their gluttony at Circe's table. Let's listen in, shall we? Thou seest, then, in what foulness unrighteous deeds are sunk, with what splendor righteousness shines, whereby it is manifest that goodness never lacks its reward nor crime its punishment. For verily, in all manner of transactions, that for the sake of which the particular action is done may justly be accounted the reward of that action, even as the wreath for the sake of which the race is run is the reward offered for running. Now, we have shown happiness to be that very good for the sake of which all other things are done. Absolute good, then, is offered as the common prize, as it were, of all human actions. But truly, this is a reward from which it is impossible to separate the good man, for one who is without good cannot properly be called good at all, wherefore righteous dealing never misses its reward. Rage the wicked, then, never so violently, the crown shall not fall from the head of the wise, nor wither. Verily, other men's unrighteousness cannot pluck from righteous souls their proper glory where the reward in which the soul of the righteous delighteth received from without, then might it be taken away from him who gave it, or some other. But since it is conferred by his own righteousness, then only will he lose his prize when he has ceased to be righteous. Lastly, since every prize is desired because it is believed to be good, who can account him who possesses good to be without reward? And what a prize, the fairest and grandest of all! For remember the corollary, which I chiefly insisted on a little while back, and reason thus. Since absolute good is happiness, tis clear that all the good must be happy, 
for the very reason that they are good. But it was agreed that those who are happy are gods. So then, the prize of the good is one which no time may impair, no man's power lessen, no man's unrighteousness tarnish. Tis very godship, and this being so, the wise man cannot doubt that punishment is inseparable from the bad. For since good and bad, and likewise reward and punishment, are contraries, it necessarily follows that, corresponding to all that we see accrue as reward of the good, there is some penalty attached as punishment of evil. As, then, righteousness itself is the reward of the righteous, so wickedness itself is the punishment of the unrighteous. Now, no one who is visited with punishment doubts that he is visited with evil. Accordingly, if they were but willing to weigh their own case, could they think themselves free from punishment whom wickedness, worst of all evils, has not only touched but deeply tainted? See also from the opposite standpoint, the standpoint of the good. What a penalty attends upon the wicked! Thou didst learn a little since that whatever is, is one, and that unity itself is good. Accordingly, by this way of reckoning, whatever falls away from goodness ceases to be. Whence it comes to pass that the bad cease to be what they were, while only the outward aspect is still left to show that they have been men. Wherefore, by the perversion to badness, they have lost their true human nature. Further, since righteousness alone can raise men above the level of humanity, it must needs be that unrighteousness degrades below man's level those whom it has cast out of man's estate. It results, then, that thou canst not consider him human whom thou seest transformed by vice. The violent despoiler of other men's goods, inflamed with covetousness, surely resembles a wolf. A bold and restless spirit, ever wrangling in law courts, is like some yelping cur. The secret schemer, taking pleasure in fraud and stealth, is own brother to the fox. The passionate man, frenzied with rage, we might believe to be animated with the soul of a lion. The coward and runaway, afraid where no fear is, may be likened to the timid deer. He who is sunk in ignorance and stupidity lives like a dull ass. He who is light and inconstant, never holding long to one thing, is for all the world like a bird. He who wallows in foul and unclean lusts is sunk in the pleasure of a filthy hog. So it comes to pass that he who by forsaking righteousness ceases to be a man cannot pass into a godlike condition, but actually turns into a brute beast. The Ithacan discreet, and all his storm-tossed fleet, far o'er the ocean wave the winds of heaven drave. Drave to the mystic isle, where dwelleth in her guile that fair and faithless one, the daughter of the sun. There, for the stranger crew with cunning spells she knew to mix the enchanted cup, for whoso drinks it up must suffer hideous change to monstrous shapes and strange. One like a boar appears, 
This a huge form uprears, mighty in bulk and limb, an African lion, grim with claw and fang. Confessed, a wolf this, sore distressed, when he would weep doth howl, and strangely tame these prowl the Indian tiger's mates. And though in such sore straits, the pity of the god who bears the mystic rod had power the chieftain brave from her fell arts to save. His comrades unrestrained the fatal goblet drained, all now with low-bent head like swine on acorns fed. Man's speech and form were reft, no human feature left, but steadfast still the mind, unaltered, unresigned, the monstrous change bewailed. How little then availed the potencies of ill, the herbs, this baneful skill, may change each outward part, but cannot touch the heart. In its true home, deep-set, man's spirit liveth yet. Those poisons are more fell, more potent to expel man from his high estate, which subtly penetrate and leave the body whole, but deep infect the soul. This chapter is a potpourri of literary references. We have subtle invocations of Virgil, Aristotle, Plato, and of course Homer, all throughout Lady Philosophy's monologue. I want to keep this episode short, so I'm only going to focus on two things. First and most obvious is this week's verse. It's a retelling of the encounter between Odysseus and Circe. Boethius uses it to emphasize the idea that doing evil is its own kind of punishment. There will be more to say about this in an upcoming chapter when we revisit the Gorgias, but the interesting thing here is that Boethius is relying on gluttony to make his point, and somehow still needs an external agent, a supernatural being no less, to exact the punishment. Odysseus's men are transformed into swine on account of their piggish lack of self-restraint at the supper table. It turns out Aristotle had a lot to say about this. It's hard to say just how much of an influence he was on Boethius at this point, but there are hints. In this instance, though, there seems to be significant difference between the two men. For one, Aristotle believed that brutish men were literally incapable of virtue, and as such, happiness. This is because what Aristotle means by brutishness is essentially what it means to be an animal. You have animal desires, and there is no deliberation as to whether you act on those desires or not. Impulse is followed deterministically by indulgence. Not because I've set aside my capacity to choose, but because I literally do not have a capacity to choose. This is why the Odysseus story is so confounding to me. Odysseus needs Hermes to supply him with the magical moly root so that he can avoid Circe's transformation spell. But he's still free to indulge at Circe's table just as his men did, and he does so. In no way, then, in this story could Odysseus and his men be seen as virtuous in anything they did on an Aristotelian reading. On Aristotle's account, they would have been worse than incontinent, 
because they acted as if they did not know better when they certainly did. Aristotle would also not have counted them as brutes. He would have said their acts were vicious on account of the fact that, as men of the world, they knew how to act well at a nobleman's table, eschewed the consequences, and acted as though they were brutes anyway. In that case, I can't help but think that Circe was within her rights to do what she did, though the punishment of transforming them into literal swine may have been a bit harsh. Second, and finally, Boethius was a Neoplatonist, and as we have heard him argue over the last book, he thinks, contrary to Aristotle, that the summum bonum is an absolute which transcends the human condition and encapsulates all good into itself, including happiness. He argues for this on the ground that no happiness or good could be true happiness or good unless it was absolutely self-sufficient. Naturally, he thinks this happiness is attainable by man in spite of his contingent being by way of contemplation of God and the good. Hence this book. Aristotle is aware of the self-sufficiency question as it turns out. He had a response to Plato, who made all these claims originally, which comes down to two things. First, obviously, that the summum bonum is not actually an absolute, but a universal that tracks the particular good for man, which is entirely a matter of observing the substance of man and generalizing from there. Second, that an absolute good toward which man could aspire not only makes no sense because goods are spread out across all his various categories of being, but is an impossible attainment because man's fundamental nature makes such a thing impossible. We are rational beings, yes. We are also beings capable of apprehending a changeless reality of some kind, as exhibited by our grasp of numbers. But for the good to be situated outside of man, in other words, to be fundamentally not a part of his nature, is to alienate him from the good he might attain as a part of his nature. Eudaimonia is intrinsic to Aristotle's man. The absolute good is inaccessible to Plato's man. And that's just about going to cover it for this week. I hope you're enjoying these, and stay tuned for the next one.